You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Right, and with that, we say good afternoon to Dr. Chris Smith. Hello, Chris. Hello. So good to be with you. Likewise. Uh, we already have some calls lined up, some WhatsApps already that have come in. So let's get straight there. Um, Julius has given us a call from the Hill. Hi, Julius. Hello, hello, Isa and Dr. Smith. My question is this. Uh, we grew up with this belief that uh, um, when it rains and, and it's thundering, lightning, we must uh, cover all the mirrors in the home mm-hmm. to prevent lightning from striking one of us in the house. And I see that uh, there's still a lot of people who believe that today. Mm. Um, so it hasn't gone away, that belief. However, I'm wondering if there's scientific proof uh, to, 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 to back, uh, back this belief or is it just a myth? Yeah, because we wouldn't just cover the mirrors. We'd also switch off and unplug appliances. You can't even wash dishes or bath uh, if there is a thunderstorm. So there's several things, certainly. Julius, thank you for that one. Chris, is there any scientific backing to to this belief? I don't think there is, no. When we get lightning storms, lightning is a thread of ionized air which acts as the air equivalent of an electrical cable. Because when you have a really strong electric field, which is what you've got between the bottom of the storm cloud and the ground, the bottom of the cloud being very, very negative, and the earth therefore becoming very, very positive because of that electric field, the intensity of the field is sufficient to pull the electrons away from the atoms and molecules which make up the gas in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And this creates a conductive conduit which is only roughly the size of a coin. And down that will flow tens of thousands of amps of current at millions of volts over a fraction of a second. And this heats the the air as it flows down to stupendously high temperatures, probably five or six times the surface temperature of the sun, Mm. like 30,000 degrees. And that causes the bright light that you see because it excites the gas to such an extent you can see that bright light. But this is going to happen where the electric field between the ground and the bottom of the cloud is at its most intense and most concentrated. So that means high points, which are good conductors that deform the electric field, which is why tall buildings, it's why metal things sticking up in the air and lightning conductors do this. But mirrors merely reflect light Mm -hmm. and they are not going to deform the electric field in the way that, say, a, a flagpole would. So they are not a risk factor for getting hit by lightning. And what about doing dishes or just being busy with something, water coming in via taps? Well, uh, this is slightly harder for me to dismiss because, of course, water and other pipes and and other appliances in your house are earthed. And if lightning struck the ground near you, then it would raise the potential of the ground, in other words, the voltage of the ground, including all the earthed things near you. Mm. So if you were holding on to something which was earthed, then you would also raise your voltage temporarily. Mm. But that current would flow only for a a small amount of time and would dissipate quite rapidly. So not quite as easy to dismiss. There is the possibility of that ground potential coming up doing damage. And in fact, this does cause damage to people's computer equipment, for example. If you get 
a big surge through the earth of uh, a set of devices, it can blow up computers. And that's why people put surge protectors into their circuitry, because it stops those sorts of surges, either along the earth or in induced currents in the mains cables. But hopefully you're sufficiently well earthed to dissipate <laughs> the current anyway if you're doing your dishes. So I don't really think that's a major risk factor. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, great question, Julius. Next, we go to Keith, who's called from Athol. Hi, Keith. Hi, Van and Dr. Chris. Hi. Um, I've got uh, two questions regarding COVID. Um, the first regards the accuracy and value of antibody test results. So is there a gold standard test or is it just one um, standard test? Mm -hmm. And assuming I take this test, can the results predict the probability of contacting the virus? Also, is there a difference in the quality of antibodies produced by a person who contracts COVID versus those produced by the vaccines? The second question relates to booster shots. Assuming I don't have comorbidities and I'm not a healthcare worker or frontline worker, on what basis do I determine if I need a booster shot? Mm -hmm. Is it simply don't take the chance, just get a booster every six to eight months or whatever, for example, or is there some other metric that they use um, to determine it? Thanks. I'll listen on the radio. Thanks a lot, Keith. I took down about four, in fact. Okay. Uh, Chris, which do you want to start with? The antibody test? Is there a gold standard? He started off saying um, we're going to have one question and then said oh, my second question is having asked about three. So, Keith, you know, you know how to speak in the additional question, so very well done. Right, antibodies. Antibodies are sticky molecules that are made in the blood in response to infections for real or vaccines. They look like the letter Y and where the arms of the letter Y are, those are the sticky bits. And antibodies will be made against a whole raft uh, an infection. But when you have a vaccine, they will be made against bits of the vaccine. The infection for real has a lot more in it than just the vaccine. When we make vaccines, we tend to, with some exceptions, we tend to use just a part, usually the crucial part of the infection, to immunise against. And we don't... The thing... But when you catch the infection, of course, you're seeing all of the infection, all of all of the things it makes, all the things it looks like. And so you do tend to make a broader suite of antibodies when you catch something for real than when you're vaccinated using something like a COVID vaccine or, say, a hepatitis B vaccine. But that doesn't mean that the response you make to the vaccine isn't any good because the people who make the vaccines very choose what to program your immune system to respond against mm. and they choose things which are critical for that infection in order to um, mean that you make very high levels of antibody very efficiently which are very good at neutralizing that infection so it's not a it's not it's a difficult question to say is natural immunity from the infection best some circumstances it might be but in in the coronavirus case it's probably not yeah. You don't have to catch coronavirus, which for some people can be a severe infection. Also, you do tend to make very high titers or levels of antibodies in response to the vaccine. But in order to have equivalently high levels from natural infection, you have to be really very ill with coronavirus. So the vaccine is therefore on that basis a much better option. In terms of whether the antibodies that you make are any good, well, yes, they are because they target the crucial part of the virus and stop it working. So it doesn't actually matter as long as you've got lots of those antibodies where you get them from. 
In terms of how long they last, this is the question which at the moment we are unclear on. The evidence we have so far is that with time, both with natural infection with coronaviruses or with vaccination, you see a drop in immunity over time. Mm. But that's not equivalent across all ages. And older people seem to see a bigger drop with time than younger people. And for this reason, governments are tending where they're offering booster programs to prioritise older individuals for boosting over younger people, reasoning that older people are at higher risk if they catch coronavirus, they're also at higher risk of losing their antibodies um, and therefore making them vulnerable to catch coronavirus again. And so really it's going to come down to how old you are and what your risk profile is as to whether or not a booster is a good idea in the short term for you. And the other question we're hopefully going to answer fairly soon is, well, how many boosters do we need? Keith says, well, do we have to keep doing this every four to six months? Well, at the moment, we don't know. And it might be that once is enough, we have to wait and see what the virus does next. Hmm. Sure. Chris, let's take a break and then we'll come back to the lines. We've got a couple of questions to bang our way through after that. 702. The Naked Scientist. Right, there's still enough time for more of your questions with Dr. Chris Smith. Your calls on 011-883-0702. Debojo, let's come to you. You're calling from Benoni with a question uh, relating to NASA. Hi. Hi, Alvin and Chris. How are you? We're good, thank you. Welcome. Good. Ah, uh, what- oh, uh, uh, just as he was about to get going. Um, let's go to Susan in the meantime. We'll get him <laughs> back. Hi, Susan. Hi, I'm Dr. Chris. I've got a very a question that's been bothering me for a very long time. Um, we have our gate front gate is about 50 meters from the house. Mm. And if I press the remote control once, it doesn't want to open. Another second time, doesn't want to open. And mm. then I put it against my head, just above my ear, and then it opens if I press it. Why is it that the remote control works better when you put it against your head? That's what I want. To and you haven't approached the gate at all, Susan. You're still standing in the same at the same distance. Same place. I stand in the same spot. Yeah. And it happens so often. If I press the, the, the remote, the gate doesn't want to open. The moment I put it against my head at my temple, <laughs> the gate opens. I want to know why <laughs> is it like that. It's not third time or fourth time lucky. It's yeah. Just it happens like that. You witness it every all the time. Okay, Susan. Um, thank you. Thank you for the question. And it is something that's quite common, that's quite prevalent in South Africa, whether it's a belief or whether it's mm-hmm. true. Uh, Chris, your thoughts? Well, we hear people talk about this quite a bit, actually. And what they tend to say is, well, perhaps you're turning yourself into part of the antenna for the device. So in other words, you're helping it by becoming part of the broadcast system that's sending the signal. Mm-hmm. But this sounds iffy to me. And I think it's more likely that when people hold the uh, device, they hold it where it's natural to hold it, which is at roughly waist to tummy height. But when you then put it on your forehead, you're elevating the height of the sender. Usually you don't hold it above your head and click it. You hold it where it's natural to hold it. So by putting it on your forehead, you're automatically elevating it, putting it to a greater height. This has a high likelihood of bringing it above other things that might block the signal, like metal countertops, metal window frames, or give it a closer line of sight between the device you're holding and the receiver on the gatepost. And I think that's the more likely explanation. It's the line of sight and a weak signal that's just about clinging on. It gives it just enough 
to make the extra jump, okay. whereas when it's down at waist height, it doesn't work. Okay. Thanks for that question. Uh, let's go back to Tebojo. Hopefully, uh, the line will hold up for him to complete his question. Hi, Tebojo. Hi, hello. Yeah, yes. I'm hoping so. so. Um, when I go deep into rural places, I tend to lose connection, um, especially uh, internet connection. But um, the question that I have, how does NASA maintain connection between, let's say, planet Earth and Mars, especially with the quality of pictures that we continuously get uh, from the spacecraft that is sent there? Don't they uh, lose connection? Mm-hmm. Like, how does over vast distances, how do they maintain proper connection between uh, these two different planets? Okay, whether it's Mars or the International Space Station, how are we able to relay communication over those distances? Uh, There's a couple of things to consider. Yes, the distances are vast, but if you're on the International Space Station, they're not as vast as you might think. It's about 400 kilometers up to where the International Space Station is when you can see it going overhead. Mm -hmm. That's not as far as, say, the Moon, which is uh, hundreds of thousands of kilometers, or the Sun, which is millions, hundreds of million, 150 million kilometers. Mars, millions of kilometers away. And the, the difference between things which are on the ground surface and kilometers away and up in space is there's nothing in the way. So when you're on the ground, you've got buildings, you've got cars, you've got other people, you've got other devices. And so you've got very much a crowded electric electromagnetic uh, spectrum and this is going to create interference and your signals have a much harder time fighting their way through to see the base station and exchange data with your phone you've also got reflections coming off of all the buildings and the metal and those reflections like electronic echoes will interfere with your signal all these things are not a problem in space because there's nothing to get in the way so uh, yes it's a long way but there's much less to get in the way And also, they use particular regimes of microwaves, which are carefully chosen to make sure they can carry a very high bandwidth of data, and they beam them directionally. So there'll be a transmitter on the craft, there'll be a dish which is tracking that beam of signal coming down from space, and because they're pointing a dish at it, they're collecting from a big area, focusing it to one point, and then receiving the signal. So it's a combination of nothing getting in the way, good choice of a particular wavelength to use and then using a very directional beam of uh, microwave transmissions between the ground and space which you collect with nice big dishes to make sure that you don't uh, have any signals going adrift none of which applies to you i hope with a mobile phone because otherwise you're going to look a bit weird walking around with a satellite dish on your on your back uh, through the streets of johannesburg <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you for all the questions to everyone who called in. I'm so always curious about the faci- the things that fascinate us in the science world. And thank you to you, Chris. Pleasure. Thank you to you for uh, drumming up these wonderful questions. <laughs> My pleasure. Till next week, Monday. That's our segment with the Naked Scientist.